This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. So if you're a beginner or an expert or anyone in between, you've found your new home. Welcome to Identity at the Center. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? (laughs) Not so bad yourself. Good. You're laughing because you see me smiling because you know I got something funny. Something. uh, I don't know if it's funny. You've been on a roll of a whole bunch of downers recently, so hopefully it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this one's kind of funny. So I normally don't do this, but I mean, everybody knows this is the trust and identity talk with Eve Mailer. So Eve and I got together a little bit earlier to talk about what we're going to talk about. And we came up with an idea, which is that everybody's going to think we're going to talk about zero trust, right? As part of trust and identity. And we came up with a a drinking game idea. So anytime someone says zero trust on this episode, you've got to do a shot. But if we're not talking zero trust, not drink, then nobody's going to be drinking. (laughs) Or is that the intent? (laughs) Well, the idea is that I think somebody's going to say at some point, but yeah, I mean, the intent probably best thing for you is not to be doing shots because I asked you about what you're going to do tonight. And by the way, it is Friday. So it's Friday night and you're going to be working on statements of work. So yeah, yeah it's a fun Friday be doing shots. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, currently in Boston, still uh, recording from a hotel room. Uh, and yeah, I will be working on lovely statements of work, which is a good thing. Right? That means that, you know, people are engaging with us to do stuff. Not going to complain about that. Not the most exciting Friday, but that's fine. Um, and yeah, and then I fly home uh, Saturday and then I think I turn around and fly back out on Tuesday. So I've got a pretty busy schedule actually for travel. I think I'm on the road every week until the end of March right now. And for You're those a traveling man. Yeah, I am a traveling man. And so right now it's today is February 17th. So I think when this goes out, it'll be a couple of weeks later. But that's probably that's part of the reason why I'm traveling so much as we're recording kind of around that travel schedule. So good times. Yeah, I was going to make I was going to make a comment about your background being so cool for a, a hotel like. Most hotels don't have ceilings that look like that. It looks like you're at a, a ski lodge or something. But it's actually, it made me reflect on, I was on a couple calls this week with identity access management professionals, and it seems like 50% of people in identity access management play instruments, primarily the guitar. And, I mean, what better guest to have on the podcast than Eve Mailer when we're going to talk about you know, playing rock and roll and doing identity and access management. Yeah, of ZZ off fame. So, you know, it's it's cool to to have her on and she can bring her golden pipes, I think, to the to the episode. Um, before we get to that, we're going to be at Gartner in a couple weeks, right? So we're going to be on stage and hopefully having a very interesting and different show uh, than maybe people are used to at Gartner when we talk with Enrique and Becky. Any thoughts on, on how you think that's going to go? I think it's going to go fantastic. I mean, a lot of the questions that the community have already sent our way are really good. I think what your point you pointed out in an earlier episode, which was the idea that a lot of the questions are coming from the same angle. So we don't have to like combine those because we only have like a half hour on stage. So we can't ask 20 questions. Uh, but if we get three or four or five really good questions, I think it'll be fantastic. And then, of yeah, course, 
hard questions sure. too, not just softballs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not like, like we do on the, on the podcast, right? But it's, <laughs> it's going to be more like meet the press. Um, yeah. no, I, I mean, of course, professional, uh, of, of course, course diplomatic, right. All that stuff, but all that good. Stuff. Hopefully questions that you haven't heard before asked and answered, you know, millions of times before in different ways. Yeah. We're I'm trying to be different, about the conference, but, but good, different. <laughs> I'm excited about the conference. I'm also excited about the, uh, Identity the Center community event that we're going to be holding on Tuesday night. So anybody who's a listener of the podcast, a regular listener, want to get out and meet Jeff and I, meet other people who listen to the podcast, please reach out. Make sure that we get you that registration link so you can sign up. Um, I think space is going to be somewhat limited. So How should they get a hold of you? Send a message on LinkedIn? I think the best way is send a message on LinkedIn. I mean, we might just throw the the link right on LinkedIn, but um, I'm a little worried about like that turning into some kind of like spam bot program. <laughs> you know, we well, wind up getting like 10,000 registrations, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So all those kind of things, but um, best case, I think just reach out to me and you and, you know, anybody who's out there listening to the podcast on a regular basis, we'd like to hear from you anyway. Yeah. You're personally invited. How about that? Um, all right, why don't we get to our topic, which is trust in identity. We've got Eve Mailer again. She's the Chief Technology Officer at Forge Rock. Welcome back to the show, Eve. It is such a pleasure to be here, guys. Um, it's uh, And I guess I'm going to see you uh, at, uh, at Gartner because that's kind of around the corner for me. Yeah, exciting stuff. And, and maybe if we get lucky, we might even hear Sabrina, who I hear is traveling with you. She is currently traveling with me. That's my little Pomeranian Chihuahua miniature poodle pup. So we'll be lucky if we get to hear that. We 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 always encourage our guests and their pets to come on, and we have yet to have one make a peep <laughs> on the show. So <laughs> yeah, cats, now that you said that, <laughs> yeah, now it'll now for sure it'll happen, right? Um, well, so we were looking back into our many archives of shows now, and you have been on the show now three and a half times. Uh, you were way back with us very early on, episode number 48. We talked about UMA. Episode 116, we talked through Fordrack Consumer Identity Breach Report, which is a really fascinating report. So I'm looking forward to the, the next one that comes out. Uh, and then we did also, obviously today, but the half episode is the one that we did around what is the difference between digital identity and identity and access management. And we asked identity friends, you know, what was their take on it? And you were kind enough to send in a response. What I want to do now is actually play what you said, and this would have been 50 episodes now, roughly, so oh almost gosh. a year. <laughs> um, you guys are maybe, busy. <laughs> yeah, we're we're nuts over here. Um, so I'm going to play it, and let's see what you said, and I'm going to see if has your viewpoint or answer changed. So let me play that clip now. Identity language has been a contentious subject for a long time. Thinking back to the beginnings of IIW, the Internet Identity Workshop, the original effort by that community was to actually develop a lexicon, a comprehensive lexicon. It was tough going then, and I think it's always tough going in this area. How I see digital identity as a phrase is that it applies to the users of or the interactors with identity technology. Uh, and I see IAM as being about the implementation of identity technology in whatever guise. So when it comes to digital identity, the kind of the user perspective, um, you know, most people interact with identity in a way that actually isn't all that pleasant. 
identity theft is probably the first thing that comes to mind. And a lot of times that interaction is actually in an offline fashion versus an online runtime authentication, for example, fashion. When it comes to IAM, that term itself is, is a bucket for a lot of other different things. And sometimes they overlap with IAM and sometimes they're maybe a little bit apart. So identity management, kind of life cycle considerations, access management, really all the runtime considerations, uh, and also governance and administration, which gets into the world of really operational things. And there's this phrase that I, I really like lately, BOLTS, which is business, operational, legal, technical, and societal. So that's kind of the game that you get into when you talk about both the, the above the water uh, user considerations and the below the water implementer considerations. One of the things that I find when I just talk with ordinary people out there who don't do what I do about what you could call the jobs to be done of digital identity is that all of the, the, the things people expect to get from this sort of technology, it cross cuts with things businesses want as well. Uh, you know, I have a new Venn diagram about this where I think in terms of protection and personalization and payment and people. So there are unique needs among all of those categories, and they cross-cut quite a lot of things, like achieving security is actually something that's welcomed by people and by businesses. It applies across all of the identity language. Okay, so a couple of things there, Eve. One, I love that you called other people, ordinary people, not weirdos <laughs> in the identity space. Second of all, has your thoughts on, you know, what you said there changed at all, evolved, or do you still think they hold true? Um, I, I still represent those remarks, I suppose I would say. Um, I, my understanding of the, of the distinction between kind of the user perspective and the implementer perspective has deepened since, you know, since that time. Um, you, you guys know, I, I run the innovation labs. Uh, here at Vordrock. And, and, you know, I've been working with this great team. And all last year, we were putting together a, kind of a fully articulated long-term vision so that we could be the change we want to see in the world for our customers and for their users. And the topics all broke out really neatly into identity users and identity implementers. And I think empathizing with users and interactors um, it is something we can obviously do more of. It's one of the toughest things to do. And when I go out to speak with our customers who are, you know, there tend to be large enterprises. Um, many of them have visions for the next hundred years because some of them have been around a hundred years and, you know, here they are doing digital transformation and everything. They, they kind of, they do care a lot about the implementation, right? They want to do that right. But the reason they do it is for all the people who interact, whether it's workforce or consumer or whatever. So I kind of find a split useful in my daily job. So that's good. So we're, we're still on the same path. I thought what was interesting about that clip was, and, and I still say to this day, when we, when we got all the answers back, it seemed like everybody in the identity space had a different answer. <laughs> and, and I liked them all, right? I listened to them. Yeah. Like, well, that's good. That's good. No, I agree with that one. Oh, well, if I force rank them. No, I don't want to force rank them. Well, that's the interesting part, right? It was nobody was wrong. Like, I felt like everybody was right. And I think that sometimes, you know, speaks to maybe the complexity sometimes and the nuance that gets lost in identity conversations and that the context matters. And, you know, where do you, you know, what is your definition of, of digital identity compared to IAM, right? That was the question. And 
everyone's got a different viewpoint on it. What I did find interesting was the one person who sent in um, their response, uh, Adam from Texas A&M, he's not an identity um, vendor, reseller, consultant, right? He's running it in the real world, as I'll call it, yep, uh, and yep. you know, it, doing identity for, you know, for real things. And he had a totally different answer than everyone else. Again, not wrong or not right compared to everyone else's, but it was just a totally different, different um, you know, definition. So it was fascinating to kind of see yeah, how it all worked out. Um, yeah. We're going to talk about trust today. And I think before we get too far along, I'm not going to say the Z word because we're not talking about that. And I don't want anybody to get drunk, pull over the, you know, pull over the side of the road, you know, <laughs> do, do bad things, whatever it may be. Um, and what I'd like to figure out first is, you know, that definition. What are we calling trust? Like, how do you, you know, how do you define it to, to people that you interact with? It, it's so tough. I actually had a really good conversation with my bass player back when I was in Seattle about this. He was a psychologist by training and he defined it as just, you know, sort of feeling like you had a guarantee of somebody's next behavior. And it didn't necessarily mean good behavior. Like, you know, if somebody in your family, you know, constantly got drunk or whatever, um, and, you know, acted badly, you could trust that they were going to do something, right? And that's not necessarily a good thing. And I thought that was interesting. But in our line of work, you know, I think people sort of keep on trying to steer around the word because it just means so many different things to different audiences. Um, we pick different words like assurance, right? Um, so recently I was, I was speaking, uh, I guess it was at EIC, um, on what it means to package ethics into a technology stack. And I had found a couple of different definitions. And I think these are my two favorite definitions. Uh, one of them comes from Rachel Botsman, who's a, she's an expert in digital trust. Um, and she did this TED Talk on how we've stopped trusting institutions and started trusting strangers. And her definition was, um, trust is a confident relationship to the unknown. And I kind of liked that one because I think particularly from the perspective of the individuals that we serve. So kind of like those identity users. Um, I think it, it talks to what, what they're looking for. Um, they want sort of certainty, some level of certainty. Um, maybe it harks back to my, my bass player slash psychologist. Um, but there's another definition that I liked and I like to pair it with it. And this comes from my colleague, Alan Foster, who many folks know. And his definition is trust is shared vulnerability, the consequences. And I think this one's, it's important in a certain way. It puts an onus, first of all, on the non-person entities in the equation. You can sort of, okay, if it's shared, or you can even imagine like employee-employer relationship, you know, it has to be shared. That's what contracts try and do. It covers even business-to-business -business notions of trust. Um, and it points the way towards figuring out, this is one of my favorite subjects, the incentives in an ecosystem. Because if you can figure out who's invulnerable to consequences, that incentivizes bad behavior. And I was thinking about this a little bit when I was listening to your great podcast with Sarah recently, um, because you, were, you guys were talking about the tension between enabling anonymity online for you know, being able to make comments you know, for people who are in tough situations and the desire to authenticate, to protect against that invulnerability to consequences. So that's when I like to think about, well, what's the real job to be done here? Thinking of that you know, product management framework that I mentioned before. Um, you want to ensure the, the real goal, the, the quarter inch hole in the wall versus the quarter inch drill bit in the situation is 
ensure everyone has consequences for bad digital behavior. And that includes for people, which is why we authenticate now. But, you know, there's people who are proposing different ways to do that. So, Eve, anybody who tuned into this podcast hoping to hear about trust between Active Directory domains or something technical like that <laughs> has probably already stopped the episode, right? We're going to be talking about a different kind of trust. We're not going to talk about zero trust. Drink up. Um, <laughs> this will be my third drinking game, by the way. Actually, fourth, because I invented one about passwordless yesterday. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you're on the right show. Um, so we're going to talk about trust in three different um, stovepipes, if you will, or three different contexts. So it's trust in the practice of IAM, trust and bias, and trust in IAM vendors. And by the way, you work for one of those. So you're the perfect guest to talk about that. But I think first and foremost, you know, we'd be, we're going to talk about that trust in the practice of IAM and how could we not talk about self-sovereign ID and verifiable credentials. Um, I think trust is a major thing that needs to be talked about in those two topics. But why don't you just go ahead and riff? I mean, I know this is something you think a lot about. I like riffing. <laughs> I don't play guitar, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you know, you're, you're referring to, you know, AD trust, kind of, you know, trust domains. And people often in our line of work put things into two buckets, technical trust and business trust. Um, and really what I think decentralized identity tries to do is to sort of marry those in a way. I mean, like I was just talking to folks from the Trust Over IP Foundation, where that's literally what they're trying to do. They have you know two stacks that unify. That's what they're trying to do. But like, even with technical trust in the mix, I can't help but get a little bit philosophical because, you know, if you look way back to kind of like the beginning of the really exciting blockchain conversation, that was my first drinking game. It was about making things, quote, trustless. Some people put it that way. Um, that was kind of how a lot of these conversations started. And that is ironic with respect to that zero thing. <laughs> um, trustless, trust-free. Now with zero. Um... <laughs> hey, I, so, I, I got this shot right up to my lips at the moment. I am so going for a drink. Friday night, I don't write statements to work. I'm just saying, guys. <laughs> um, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so decentralized architectures generally are, you know, they're making a pitch for evenly distributing vulnerability to consequences. And I might describe that as, you know, more like resilient mutual trust, right? A better job of mutual trust, something like that. Um, here's the challenge in decentralized systems. There's always the possibility, indeed, it's kind of the likelihood over time, sometimes very quickly, you get what I call insidious recentralization, which messes with the incentives in one way or another. So through exchanges, through aggregated services, you look at the crypto world, and, and you can imagine looking at, at that in light of decentralized identity, verifiable credentials. And so that verifiable credentials world, it kind of makes a run at being able to trust that it was something was issued properly, some piece of information was issued by somebody you care about, and you know, you'd say, "Yeah, I'd go, I'd go for that. I'd believe that." Um, and also making services more trustworthy. I can't say that without sort of air quotes in, in this particular show. Um, for example, through a technique of revocation, allowing somebody to like share a piece of data and then pull it back 
in a technological sense, not making a, you know, right of erasure request. You know what I'm saying? Um, unfortunately, you know, even sharing a few little pieces of information are very likely to be correlatable. It doesn't take much. And that's a kind of insidious recentralization that it's easy to kind of just sort of skip over in our thinking. So I think we still have a tough road ahead of us in, in improving things. We have to be very careful how we implement and very careful how we set up systems and very careful how we set up ecosystems. Yeah, how we implement kind of segues into my next question or my next topic, which was really thinking about organizations or IAM practitioners trusting their IDPs. So whether it's an on-prem product or a product in the cloud to authenticate users and to do it with high levels of certainty that there are systems letting the right people in and not the, not the wrong people. But there's an aspect of configurability. So even in the cloud, you can set your own password policy, things like that. So it's kind of a shared responsibility, right? It's not like, oh, I trust them to do the job for me. There's still some of it that falls back on the practitioner, the organization. Yeah. So are, are, um, let me ask, are you thinking about workforce users when you talk about that or just all kind of any users? I think it could be any. I think it could be any. So, I mean, obviously, I think the responsibility does go in kind of all directions. And what's interesting is giving choice to end users doesn't have to drain assurance out of a system. I mean, that's one of the things that NIST 800-63 can be good for is, is shared language about, you know, the quality of what, you know, some authentication that's been made or the quality of all the backing systems. And so I think that you can give choice in that context in a really interesting way. And by the way, giving choice to users is a way of giving them that confidence. And I would say allowing them to trust you, being trustworthy. Um, you know, I, all anybody really wants is convenience, value, and control. So if you can give them some control um, while assuring yourself that you know, quality hasn't degraded in you know, how you're testing them, I, I think that's super powerful. And that's something, you know, it's something we do actually inside Forgerock you know, with, our, with our own, how we log into our own systems uh, allows a great deal of choice, including like FIDO authenticators. So I, I put the fact that you're going to be on the show out on the ID Pro Slack channel and friend of the show, Simon Moffat, who, by the way, I'm sure you remember as a former Forge Rocker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, a friend of Forge Rock, too. Yeah, friend of Forge Rock, too. <laughs> and he commented on that topic that I was mentioning um, that the user trust of the IDP is an even more interesting question. And so my question is, how do IDPs become more trusted by users? So how do, how do you move that, move that bar, move that line? And, you know, thinking of it from a practitioner perspective, I always go down to kind of the, the basics. So is this getting to the point of saying that if I have stronger controls, if I, you know, require things like MFA, now I'm going to increase my level of trust with the the user, right? Is, is that kind of what he's getting at or is there something beneath the surface? Um, I thought it was an intriguing question and I really, you know, shout out to Simon for a very intriguing question. Um, I do think, you know, people aren't generally aware of, you know, what an IDP is. They probably don't really <laughs> know how to spell or capitalize IDP. 
um, they do have relationships with service providers. Um, and the service provider might be in an IDP role, might be in an RP role. Um, and the people's relationship with their service providers in their life, it, it's kind of changing. And people are getting more suspicious, um, cynical, <laughs> savvy. And um, there was a, I had, I had a great opportunity to do a, a white paper uh, along with one trust. And uh, one of the things, one of the stats that we were quoting from there, this is from a couple of years ago, Edelman is the, the PR agency, huge PR agency, and it does this annual trust barometer, which seems relevant to this conversation. And so from a couple of years ago, they found that 60% of the uh, respondents were saying that their default te tendency is to distrust something until they see evidence that is trustworthy. So that, I mean, that's kind of a, a number to put to my um, assertion. <laughs> and 40% of the respondents said there are brands they love, but no longer buy from because they don't trust them. Now I I'm one of those 40%. That's a high plurality, right? Um, a more recent survey from Magna and Ketch uh, found that 74% of respondents highly value data privacy. And this was about 20%, 20 percentage points more than other modern ethical issues of the day, like sustainability. And I think I mean, it makes sense to me because like, it can personally affect you, right? It can, it can mess up your life if you can't rely on some of these things. So um, I do think there's a role for how practitioners implement these systems. And there's an awful lot to do with the experience design, which is part of implementation of identity, no question about it. It's also about um, ensuring there's auditability and transparency. Um, for some time now, I've talked about this kind of, I don't know, modern data privacy 2.0 pyramid of things that kind of make up privacy. And at the bottom is data protection. You know, and that's what the original data protection directive in Europe was called. And that's kind of what they meant by privacy. But we piled more stuff on as requirements. So in the modern kind of GDPR and all of its cousins era, data transparency, you know, what you tell people you know about them, what you tell them you want from them is it's, you know, becoming equally as important. It's starting to be mandated. And then at that tippy top is data control. What controls do you give people? What choices do you give people? And all of that adds up to um, different kind of knobs and buttons and, you know, switches that you can use to, to engender trust from people. That was a good question by Simon. I think it very nuanced. Um, I don't want to build him up too much because he also asked <laughs> if you get royalties on SAML integrations. <laughs> and I was thinking, it was like, oh, how amazing would that be? <laughs> that would be amazing. But, you know, we wouldn't be talking to you if you were. It's like, here, world, here, have a standard. And of course, you know, in, in 2001, when we finished version one of SAML, we're like, here, world, here it is. Go use it. You, you may now begin. And it took to like... 2005 so i learned a lesson that i live five years in the future <laughs> but yeah well, no I'm, no royalties off of any you know I, i'm yet. sorry for you but it's lucky for us because we probably wouldn't be talking <laughs> if you were or anybody was and i guess that speaks oh, to like just you know the open source of having open standards why they're so important and not locked behind you know some sort of cost i think but I, anyway, I, will I say, just thought that was I funny did, that <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, <laughs> hat tip <laughs> to Simon. I did I did write a book once, co-write a book about SGML, the precursor to XML that you know we used in SAML and other things. And I did get royalties off of that, and it wasn't enough to retire, and I can assure you, although with, with the advance I bought 
uh, a pool cue. Um, <laughs> oh, at the time, okay. I was playing a lot of billiards. <laughs> I, I'm not good, but that was what I chose to do. And I was working for a company in Ann Arbor, and I this was before all the constraints, and I could like walk onto a plane with with a pool cue <laughs> and go to Ann Arbor. So that's kind of cool. That's my story of royalties. <laughs> yeah, no, that part kind of like if you were getting royalties from Samuel, it kind of reminds you of that scene in Office Space where Peter's like, you know, the penny tray. Well, that's where people are taking full pennies. I'm only talking about a fraction of a penny. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. All back, out of so back on like my very simple level of thinking, I think you kind of like went way deeper but i i did have a follow-up to that which was i've heard people make the statement that having password lists somehow makes people feel like it's less secure i think if somebody thinks it's less secure that would reduce their trust so what do you think of that i did have some experiences and this was back when i was at forrester and i had some conversations with some financial services folks and i'm i i, I think certain experiences were recently borne this out as well Certain folks that you're uh, trying to protect, like high net worth individuals, for example, can become very suspicious if they just sort of silently get into their service. And, you know, I had heard of hard tokens, you know, authenticators being used with that specific population, specifically to like give them confidence that everything was safe. I do think that it's going to end up being sort of experiential and generational over time. You know, like the conversations I used to have with people on planes 10, 15 years ago about what do you do? Well, you end up, you talk with Sarah. About <laughs> you ever hear of users do. and passwords? I do that. <laughs> and it was like, then you have the conversation about how much you hate passwords. And that kind of still happens now. But more often, I run into people these days who use password managers, who have a password strategy. And I've always likened it to, well, you have a house key strategy, you know, so more people have a password strategy because they see what's going on. They've gotten more savvy about that. And I do think that as a sure, as those service providers, IDPs, provide visible assurances to a user about, you know, this is the personalization aspect. You know, in the little clip you played, I was talking about this Venn diagram where I've got, you know, protection and personalization and payments and people. Um, it's personalization can be valuable mutually and ensuring that that person knows that, you know, who they are and they know who you are. And like, you know, that actually is that helps you build the relationship between you. That's valuable stuff. And so I think there's lots of ways to do that. Um, and passwordless experiences as you know we see them in their best expression with you know a really well orchestrated journey will give those signals i think so i think it's going to be possible to do i don't know i was just talking with folks uh, this week saying you know how movies started to have this like modern tvs have this faster frame rate um than they used to and movies start looking really weird you know they did it so they can capture sports action and yet now it makes movies look like I don't know, bad soap operas. And I really hated that and, you know, sort of argued with my husband about like what frame rate we should set. And well, well the frame I'm rate over it is now. how you knew you were watching a, a soap opera because it was exactly. totally different than everything else. Although, I'm a high frame know, rate <laughs> fanatic. I love 60 frames or more, but I get the purity of a 24 <laughs> or a 30. There was, there was also like, you know, I'm thinking of uh, like Monty Python sketches because they only used film when they went outdoors 
to, to record so you could tell whether it was an indoors or an outdoor scene just from that. But in any case, my point being, um, people can get used to the new paradigm, I think. And I think as long as those signals are there presented to them, I mean, authentication is moving to that direction that Bob Blakely called 20 years ago, you know, from authentication to recognition. Um, being recognized in a non-creepy, respectful fashion is going to become the way of doing things. And I think, you know, I, I was a skeptic 10 years ago, literally 10 years ago and a couple of months when I was at Forrester, I wrote a, a, a blog post called um, Kill Your Password Policies. Because you remember Matt Honan uh, was on the cover of Wired with the long read that was about how he got hacked and passwords are a nightmare and blah, blah, blah. And that was all true. And it is true. And my reaction then was, I think it's going to be really hard to root out static shared secrets. Really hard. So in, in service of a better experience, get rid of those stupid password policies that are doing nothing. You know, <laughs> bit strength is not helping us. <laughs> essentially. And now we all know that and this took it out of, of 800-63. And um, so we're in a better place now and people have learned. And now we're onto the MFA prop bombing. So. But I do have to remind you that Venn Diagrams was the original I am drinking game. So oh, remember Venn Diagrams? Were, was there a drinking game around Venn Diagrams? How did I, I just that one? No, I, I, I'm kind of tongue in cheek saying that, but it was like Venn diagrams were everywhere and like every IM oh, yeah. conference, right? People just love the Venn, Venn diagram. diagrams were, were, I would say identity sea shanties 1.0. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know what this whole conversation gets me thinking about, like trust is really not a black and white issue, right? Because there are times where I have that low, assurance of requirement access to a website to you know get access to my son's baseball team's website i will tell you though when it says do you want to save this credit card i'm like heck no heck no <laughs> do i want to save my credit card on this website but you know just kind of that level of trust is not always the same whether whether you're talking about you know high risk assets versus low risk assets that you're trying to access and lorraine ald from the ID Pro Slack channel, threw out a question. Uh, she wanted to get your thoughts on the NIST 863-C draft four, with, or draft revision four, which you know is the level of assurance guideline from NIST. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and that's great, great question. Um, we've definitely been digging into it. We're not done digging into it. You know, it's it's getting better and better. For sure, you know I referenced getting rid of the the appendix from from Rev one. <laughs> I think going to Rev two, the whole thing about well, make sure that it's you know super strong bit strength, and then we learned that that wasn't you know in the top five list of things we want to do. Um, the, the initial thoughts that I have around ways to comment mostly have to do with um, finding ways to give guidance around that. That notion of fine-grained, contextual, adaptive, intelligent, dynamic assurance levels. And for a long time, I've called this LOA pie. Like, you know, <laughs> how do you get into the cracks of the keyboard when it comes to levels of assurance um, and, and figure out how to make it more dynamic? And um, that makes me, first of all, think AI as a, as a technology and a technique you'd apply. And maybe we'll talk more about that. But um, 
I actually went over to talk with folks who are familiar with one of our UK government customers, who's kind of in the same boat as, you know, the customers, the direct customers of NIST to say, you know, well, do you have any recommendations? And what I learned was this particular UK government customer has what they call a transactional risking model. And I, I quite like it. And it goes into more depth on um, transactions and sessions and on behavior and on operational rules. And, you know, maybe that maybe that'll come by a Rev7. I don't know. It's like something that, you know, they keep on deepening. Um, but that's that whole kind of dynamicness is, is remains a hot topic. It will continue to be a hot topic. So you mentioned AI, which is a hot button word for me. I'm a big fan of all the different tools that have come out and the, the democratization of being able to leverage technology like that. Um, and you mentioned bias and where are these tools being developed, trained on, right? It's being trained on, let's just take ChatGPT, right? We've, we've been talking about this. We should just call this AI okay. at the center at some point because we keep bringing it up. <laughs> but um, ChatGPT has been you know, basically learning from the internet up through, I think, 2021 is what its data set is good for. Um, and based on what it's been learning, there are still some questions around bias and where do you get answers from and are they accurate, which I think is probably the most important thing is, is the data fact or not? Um, I ran a little experiment on, you know, myself <laughs> typing it in. It's like, tell me about me. First of all, I didn't know who I was. I'm like, all right, well, thanks, dude. Uh, so I then I had to give it a couple Ouch. more prompts. Okay, right. It's like, oh, well, I work at RSM. I host Identity Center. It's like, oh, that Jeff Stedman. Okay, great, cool. And then it started spitting out some stuff that some of it was not true. Uh, apparently, I've been promoted, apparently, and I am oh. a partner with, with RSM. So, Daniel, Run for with it. thank you very much. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, High that's assurance not true. Data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then you know, me being part of other industry groups, identity ecosystem. I've never even heard of that thing. Um, I certainly support IDSA, for example, but I'm not a member of it. And it just leads me down this path of, okay, well, I, I, you know, it's one of those things where I get so excited. It's like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And we, when we figure it out and when we can trust it and that bias is still there, that lack of transparency of where the data is coming from. You know, if it was something that was like, oh, well, this is where I pulled it from, for example, well, I can go and correct that piece of information. So it's not mm -hmm. citing it, which I think is a little bit different than what Bing has, Microsoft Bing has announced and I'm in part of the beta, so I actually get to play around with the, you know, the the chat GPT integration within the Bing search, which oh, I does never that mean you know search. Sydney? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I know Sydney. The right? Sydney. Wow. Yeah, the code name. Friend of Sydney. And they have actually taken a, a, a pretty unique approach where they actually cite in the answer where they're pulling the information from. So it'll say, well, here's the answer. And then it'll give a little, you know, footnote of say, OK, well, this part came from this website and this other part came from this other website. But you're still dealing with, okay, well, why did it pick that website versus another website? And that bias that exists, and I'm just curious, what, where do you see this going from like a bias and a trust perspective on that AI side of the world? Because it seems like that's a little bit counter to what we want in security, which is this binary decision, right? Either you're good or you're bad. And there isn't a lot yeah. of flex in between. I mean, I think it's possible, first of all, to, to answer the, sort of the last little thing you said, it's possible for us to start answering those questions of you're in or you're out in a more fine-grained way and to change our decision more, more often. And I think, you know, there are different kinds of AI and large language models are a kind of AI that, you know, it, 
it's practically Mad Libs, right? It's filling in blanks and it's using the data that started out, you know, written by humans who may have been incorrect or lying or whatever. And so it's not meant for the purpose of being true. And we'd have to ask it to do a lot of things to assure ourselves that something is true. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of usefulness even, even with that. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, I don't know, junior reporters writing things, getting things wrong and needing an editor, right? It's not, it's not so surprising. Um, the, the key, I think, y- you put your finger right on it, is there, there's a branch of AI literally called explainable AI, XAI for short. And I think it's really important, if at all possible, for adopters of AI technology to strive for explainability. There's another term, interpretability, which means more like, you know, it's it's properly understood. If you think about like meaningful consent guidelines, it's sort of like that. You know, did somebody understand what you're telling it, where you got the information? Um, so I think it, it, my colleague, Steve Venema, happened to just publish a, a really nice post on a Fordrock community. So community.fordrock.com, if you want to check it out, called Creating Trustworthy AI, as it happens. And he's partly relaying some of the good work that NIST has done here. So they have a special publication, 1270, towards a standard for identifying and managing bias in artificial intelligence and other work. So it, um, it, it that uh, a special publication lays out a bunch of examples of, you know, concerning results in AI. Um, and, and where we come down on, on the advice in that post is, you know, yes, harm can be real. Familiarize yourself with explainable AI and interpretable AI. Um, of course, you have to make ethical management of consent around sharing data, using data, um, and the storage of data, the management, you know, data governance a guiding principle. And these are the sorts of things that will increase confidence in, I would say, really every kind of AI. And so the kind of AI that, you know, we specialize in, I would call, it helps intelligent decisioning. Um, And decisioning in identity is largely about authorization, although not always. It could be finer grained, like, um, you know, uh, allow them to cut a PO of this size, but not that size, <laughs> or, you know, step up and test them harder if they try and do this other thing or in circumstances that look suspicious, you know, you, that is the kind of fine. It's like turning, you know, my CEO friend Raj talks about, you know, what seems like a dumb tool <laughs> without that help can become a very smart tool. I mean, and even that needs explainability. And, and that's a, that's a stance that that's a principle that we uphold in what we do when you're doing any kind of decisioning and you always want to be able to sort of bottom out with some sort of human oversight. So I recommend people take a look at that post just for like a, just kind of an overview of the current state of the art and, and get a little bit of advice. Yeah. If you can send me the link, I'll be sure to add it to our show notes for people to check out. Absolutely. Um, I had a question and just maybe this sounds stupid, but maybe it's not. <laughs> would we even recognize bias? How would we even recognize it? I think it's quite difficult um, there's some, the, the post relays some, some discussion there as well. They're from a different, I think from a different NIST document, if I'm not mistaken, um, about the ways that people fool themselves. I mean, you know, human beings are value judgment machines. <laughs> um, so everything we do is intended to make patterns, see patterns, and quite often get it wrong, or just, you know, the world is full of nuance for human beings and, and their brains. So 
um, there's some good advice about, you know, sort of how not to fool yourself. And uh, there's a, there's a concept in, this is actually in the rationalist community, which I uh, sometimes frequent online. Um, the concept is steel manning, <laughs> you know, like a straw man argument is kind of like a straw argument is, well, it's too easy to knock down. That's, that's, that's no test at all. Steel manning is when you imagine the, all the best arguments for the thing that you hate or vice versa, you know, all the, all the totally awful, you know, killer arguments against the thing you love and like, do the work, do the work to, to steal your implementation against that and then and then be transparent about what you found i could sit here and gripe about ai all day because i <laughs> and i do it all the time but you know it feels like every call center you dial into these days is like answered by somebody who or answered by a an ai voice i'm a person i can understand complex questions send me to an operator I want to talk to a person. Oh, no, no. Zero. <laughs> zero, zero. And it's like, no, I can really help you. Just give me your question. Okay, well, I have questions about my bill. I'm sorry. I didn't understand that. It's like, okay, <laughs> operator, okay. I need to speak. Ah, I'm going to pull my hair out. Anyway. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, that that is exactly, that's sort of like the the vocal uncanny valley of, you know, you just, if you have that level of suspicion going in, it doesn't help um, <laughs> for them to keep going down that path and they should just make it easy uh, yeah, to get yeah. to a human. Well, I also think that it just, it carries over to the next time you hear one of those systems on the phone. So like poor implementation of technology just builds that lack of trust that you have for the technology. I guess that, that can extend, as I think you're saying, it can extend to sort of, you know, all service providers, to all retailers, to all everybody, maybe to all employers. I mean, it's a heavy burden. And it's why being modest in our aims uh, is, is a good idea when we deploy systems. I kind of feel like on the chat GPT front, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about like, hey, this could take away our jobs. But I actually think that where AI could flip the script is actually just make us more productive because I find myself doing like routine tasks over and over again throughout my day. And if I had some kind of true virtual assistant that could be automated, that it could just talk to me and I could tell it everything I need done and it could go and do it. I'd get huge value out of that. I'd be much more productive. I could spend my There's, time researching yeah. and getting smarter. Yeah. I know. I, so a few months ago I was, um, starting to generate all my weird illustrations in my talks and my presentations using Dolly 2. And, it, you know, they do get more and more, I don't know, hallucinogenic. Uh, and, <laughs> and I was talking to somebody at work who's like, well, this is just an affront. That's not art. And I said, well, the same thing was said about photography in the beginning, just so you know. <laughs> um, I actually find a lot of creativity in like people have already written novels and illust the illustrated graphic novels with some of these things. And like, obviously the engine didn't come up with it itself we it, it, what comes after no code this <laughs> this is what comes after no code and that's a new kind of democratization that it's uncomfortable for you know the the high priests of whatever do that thing um it's very comfortable for folks who uh want to be able to do it because there's a lot of folks who need the results you know it's right. beneficial yeah, so. the example I always hear is the you know the electric light put out put people out of business who went around and lit street lights, you know, 
but it didn't yeah. end humanity. I think that the potential of automation with AI, you know, if all you do is repeatable mundane tasks, yes, I think you could. It's yeah. going to force you to get out of that business and do something that actually should be more empowering. This is, well, I, I mean, this is going to create destruction, AI. right? Yeah. That's just automation, right? It's not yeah, thinking for It's just automation. Well, and that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, this is, it's a species of automating something, automating and scaling something. And those are very powerful things and they can be used for ill as well as good. Um, but, and so, you know, speaking of trusting all these things, how do we make these systems that are starting to become so powerful? Um, how do we get a level of letting them do more rather than locking them down? And, and it's, it's through explainability, interpretability, openness, transparency. That's so before we, we completely go off the rails, <laughs> I did want to hit this third area, which was trust in vendors. Again, perfect person to have on here because as somebody who's the CTO for a company that creates cybersecurity software, um, you know, what is it that's needed to build trust in your company and what can destroy that trust? Yeah. <clears throat> this is where I'm tempted to reach for that pyramid I was describing before again, because protection, transparency, and giving customers control, I think are all really good elements of, of achieving that trust. You know, lots of, lots of things can go wrong. I think everybody knows when you're using a software vendor, a SaaS vendor, whatever it is, um, it's understood that nothing is perfect. However, to maintain the relationship, you need to have unassailable transparency. Um, you mentioned the consumer identity breach report that I'd come on and talked about at one point. Um, one of the things that we were watching last year when we published, and we're working on the new one, the fifth, this will be our fifth anniversary one, so you know, stay tuned. But we were watching breach notification delays lengthen even as we see mandates starting to encroach to make you do it. And like, and the best way to, to be trustworthy is to have what I think in the open banking world, they call this compete, not comply mindset. How do you become a leader in, in that openness? How do you become a leader in doing better? And I, I, I just think that's the best way. For some reason, I feel like this is an area that companies just plain struggle with is getting you know the breaches the breach notifications out the transparency whatever it may be I, I just we've seen the playbook happen over and over and over again where you know here's one that was hand okay everybody you know everybody's going to get breached at some point right how you handle it i think is more important at this point because it, back in my day when you got breached it was game over your company was done now it seems like everybody's getting breached for some reason and it's not the you know the death knell that it used to be but <laughs> Every it just seems like every company sucks at you know handling breaches with Period. the public. They just yeah, they're just not good at it. Did you just say back in my day? Back in my day, <laughs> yes, I did. I you pulled can't that get out. Get off my lawn. <laughs> um, you know, we we had to parse uphill in the snow both ways. Um, no, it's it's true that more companies are getting experience with it, and it's being sort of democratized in the sense of it's not just the mega corporations, you know, having, you know, their bazillions of records breached. It's smaller players, smaller enterprises. And we showed this actually in our in our report last year. Um, it's it is becoming a little bit like, you know, password knowledge, a fact of life. And um, 
I think what what would really be killer is lack of good faith transparency. Um, and I almost feel like everybody should just put out a dirty laundry report monthly just to get into the habit. Um, it's making the same mistake twice. Um, and it's making the wrong choice, whatever that might be in configuration or whatever, be the easiest choice for their customers. So there's some commitments that any company can make there and survive some bad storms. I feel like one of the areas that you know, creates a vulnerability in this respect is cloud delivered services. So identity as a service, for example. Um, and I got to think this keeps IAM practitioners up at night knowing that they've put trust in a company and that they may be running some software, for example, like like the SolarWinds incident, right? I, I think that I'm not trying to pick on SolarWinds, but it's probably one of the biggest um, breaches of our career. And it was a supply chain in, incident that um, affected so many organizations. Well, now I'm putting so much trust in an identity as a service. Uh, they may be running software that gets hacked. They may get hacked themselves. You know, what's the IAM practitioner to do? You know, it's funny. I, I guess I'll mention the breach report again, just because um, what we found last year was that supply chain attacks were up 297%. Um, that's a big deal. <laughs> and this is where, it, all right, I guess it's time for drinking. Uh, zero trust architecture <laughs> came up with, <laughs> I mean, it is kind of right <laughs> for us on a Friday. Um, not for the listeners. Maybe it is for the listeners. But it came up with this concept of the SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials. And I really think that's a good idea uh, because it, it sort of bespeaks this trend towards proper inventorying of everything. You know, GDPR sort of requires proper inventorying of personal data and that zero thing <laughs> um, really is starting to require proper inventorying of like all the software that you're using in whatever guise. So I kind of feel like that is a way to start having that conversation. Obviously, general supply chain management and vendor management um, is, it, it, that's what it sort of comes down to. And, and it can learn the lessons actually of some of the, if you think about the federation assurance level work in NIST um, that allows for uh, assessment of an IDP to be of any sort of third party that you're working with and accreditation of assessors and all the rest of it. So there's so much going on in this space. I feel like we could talk for probably like hours. And I hear a little like dingling. Maybe that's Sabrina's collar oh, or something. Sorry. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's fine. I, I was really hoping this would be the time that we would get, you know, the, the, the <laughs> pet on on cam and on and on the Identity Center podcast. But it is a dog uh, being been... fed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of getting fed, it is a Friday night. Why don't we? start to wrap things up so that you can get on with your weekend. I can get on with writing my statements of work, which is super exciting. Um, but before we go, we do like to end on that lighter note. We're all going to be in Dallas area, Grapevine, Texas for Gartner in a few weeks. And that is your neck of the woods. So one, looking forward to actually being able to give you a fist bump in real life. But for the people who are you know congregating down there who aren't from that area, what's a little known place that people should try to go out of their way to grab a bite to eat or a drink or something like that, that we should check out while we're there. Yeah. Oh, there's a dog. You're hearing a yeah, dog. Yeah, Sabrina. Um, <laughs> um, I, so, yeah, I'm so excited people are going to be in my neck of the woods. Um, and so I live really close to Grapevine. 
And of course, it's going to be at the Gaylord Texan. So it's kind of, I actually found out that the Gaylord Texan is the largest Gaylord. And for those who've been to the Gaylord Rockies um, for Identiverse, that's the smallest Gaylord, just for the record. And so what I would love to recommend to everybody is if you want some good barbecue, and I'm going to say a good barbecue experience, then I do recommend Hard Eight. There's one really not far. They, they keep the, the smokers going like 24-7 and you walk up and you order by the pound and it's just a super cool experience. Um, and I also love, there's a town called Carrollton and it's got some amazing Korean food. It's also not far. And so if you're going to reach out and experience the, the general area, that's what I say you got to do. Okay, well, you had me at 24-hour smoker, and I looked it up. Hard hard eight, as in the number, Ocho, <laughs> barbecue. Yep. So that's definitely going to be on the list uh, for I'm sure. I'm going to start and calling what was the, other... the Ocho. Random the Ocho, right. Dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad you got the reference. Um, okay, we're going to go ahead and get things wrapped up. Um, you know, Eve, you've been generous, as always, with your time with us. Super appreciate it, you coming on, especially on a Friday night. Uh, taking time out for us and sharing your wisdom uh, with us and the listeners that are out there. Um, I'll have links in our show notes to reach out to you. Know, you can connect with you on LinkedIn. There's Sabrina. Oh, what a good little pupper. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You, you know, this is audio only, but we got to see. We got finally got to I'm see Sabrina. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, we'll, have show, we'll have links in our show notes. Uh, you can connect with Eve on LinkedIn. We'll have a link to Forge Rock. Um, I did find the CTO lounge on the Ford Rock community website that actually has a Definitely. few different articles on AI and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll put a link to that and also explain AI.org uh, so that if you're interested in sort of that area, you can kind of see what that's been working on. And of course, links for Jim and myself to connect on LinkedIn. Um, if you are, you know, looking for a very interesting conversation at Gartner, we're going to be on stage, you know, talking with Enrique and Becky, send us your deepest, darkest, hardest questions mm -hmm. for Gartner. Uh, there's still time. Send it over to us. Uh, send it to us via LinkedIn, and uh, you know we'll try to get uh, try to identify some themes and include that for part of the discussion we'll have there. So uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. You can find us on the web, identityatthecenter.com. We're also on Twitter at IDAC Podcasts, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll talk with you all in the next one. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.